disciple get plugged in. Okay, so we are jumping back into the book of Acts. You will notice there are a few extra empty chairs next to you after last week. It's the nature of the Easter season. How many of you all enjoyed Easter, by the way? Wasn't Easter awesome? Love Easter does not in any way, shape, or form bother me that we have an influx of people. I am just pleased that culturally there's still some level of relevance uh, when it comes to the gospel and the church and the local community. I love that we see an influx of people. Prayerfully, they hear the message and they receive just a tangible touch of love. And so this week we are jumping back into our study of the book of Acts. So get your pencils sharpened, open your Bibles, everybody say, Word. We are in Acts 14. Acts chapter 14, and we are on the very first missionary journey of Paul the Apostle, and so we've been on this, this trip uh, with the Apostle Paul and friends since chapter 13. Matt, can you bring up that map for, map, Matt, can you bring up that map for me? Not as easy as you think to say. Acts chapter 13, the church at Antioch. Somebody yell out something that you remember about the church at Antioch in Syria. What's that? He said nothing. Thanks, Renee. I remember nothing. There's nothing more encouraging for a pastor than to hear that. <laughs> There's an Antioch. Uh, any, any of y'all remember anything? Very metropolitan city. It was a... There you go. Very good. I'm glad you remember that. It is a mixed church. You have Jews and Gentiles, primarily Gentiles. Significant. The very first planted Gentile church becomes a massive sending entity. They are generous. They are generous with their physical capital, that is their, their resources, sending resources to Jerusalem, but they're also generous with their human capital. Family, it is a, a movement of the Spirit to see generosity move in a place. So when I'm telling you how generous you're being, I'm, I'm giving God the glory because I know that is the Holy Spirit bringing that about here in this place, just like at Antioch. They were generous. And the Holy Spirit speaks to the church that they are to set apart Paul and Barnabas for the work of the ministry. It is not Paul and Barnabas who selected themselves. It is not man who selected them. It is God who set them apart. For the work of the ministry, keep that in mind, family. If you are called, it is God who gives you the calling. It is not man. Okay, so they are called to go into missions. And so they leave Antioch in chapter 13, and they take a trip down to Seleucia, uh, traveling like along the established trade routes of Rome, but they really didn't know where they were going. They were being led by the Spirit, okay? And so they go down to the port city of Seleucia, hop on the intercoastal Roman highway. They sail over to Salamis, where they first preached the gospel in a Jewish synagogue. Okay, we don't know about how it was received. We assume it was received sort of well. Uh, they preached their way across the island of Cyprus. And in chapter 13, they also end up in the city of Paphos, which was the, the chief city of the island of Cyprus. That is where the Roman governor, Sergius Paulus, ruled from. And it was there that Paul, the apostle and friends, shared the gospel with Sergius Paulus, and he became a believer. We also find this little obscure note, chapter 13, verse 9, that Saulus Paulus, that we know him as Saul, starts going by the name Paul. Many of you have been wrongfully taught that Paul's name changed from Saul to Paul when he became a believer. Not true. He was always Saulus Paulus. Saul, his Hebrew name, Paul, his Greek name. And since his ministry is to the Gentiles, he starts going by the name Paul. They sail from Paphos. Actually, there's a guy they met there. Do you all remember the, the knucklehead who thought he was going to stand against the, the word of God? Do you remember his name? 
Bar Jesus, his name meaning son of Jesus, he's really son of the devil. He struck blind for a little while, uh, God working through Paul to levy that type of, of judgment. And then they sail over to Perga. We get another little note of a guy who bails the mission. You all remember his name? John Mark. That may not seem very important to us right now that John Mark sails from Perga back down to Jerusalem. Some have offered that he was homesick. Others said he couldn't uh, face the persecution or the difficulty. He was young in his faith. Whatever the reason, he leaves the ministry and heads back down to Jerusalem. That is going to become very important next week. We're going to see why that is important. They are undeterred. They continue traveling north. They go to the city of Antioch, which was a, a chief city, Roman city of that area, a trade city. And they're in now Antioch of Phrygia, and they preach the gospel where? Synagogue. That's right. They travel and they, they start first preaching in the Jewish synagogues and then to the Gentiles. That is, that's consistent with the process. First to the Jew, then to the Gentile. They preach in the synagogue at Antioch, a very strong response. Paul preaches a very Jewish message. We have almost his entire message preserved for us in chapter 13. And we see the response of the city. How does the city respond that next Saturday? The whole city shows up. So there's, there's excitement in the air. There's Jews and there's Gentiles. There's God-seekers and God-fearers. They're all coming to the synagogue to hear this message. And a group of unbelieving Jews, stirred by jealousy, stir up the crowd. You'll see through the book of Acts, lots of stirring. Uh, they're stirring up persecution. They're stirring up antagonism. They're stirring up the poisoning of the mind. And so Saulus Paulus uh, boldly proclaims that they are there to do God's work. You can criticize, you can compliment. Either way, the gospel will be proclaimed. They deliver the message to the Gentiles. Then they knock the dirt from their shoes. You remember that? And they travel on. And so Paul and friends go to Iconium, which is where we were last time in the book of Acts. They were there for a long time, preaching with boldness. Many believe. But still, there was a group of unbelievers who poisoned the mind of the crowd and then Paul and friends made their way down to Lystra. And that is where we are at this morning, Acts chapter 14, starting in verse 8. We are now in the city of Lystra. Kind of a, would seem like a fringe city, not a very important city. You know, you, you think to yourself, there are some cities where nothing important really goes on there. You know, nothing significant or nobody significant will come from there. Uh, some of you may think of Rowlett that way or... Saxy or Wiley, Murphy, some of you are like, hey, I live there. Significant stuff happens there. Well, Leicester is one of those cities where you'd look at and go, it's a fringe city. Nothing really big is going to come out of there. But I'll tell you, there's always a gleaning. In fact, from the city of Leicester will come one great missionary by the name of Timothy, uh, who will be protege of Paul. But we don't meet Timothy for a while. Uh, in fact, the first person that we encounter in Acts chapter 14, verse 8 is somebody who was crippled from birth. Uh, interesting that the lens of the text will now focus in on the most marginalized and overlooked person and the whole community of the city of Lystra. Acts chapter 14, verse 8. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth. He had what? Never walked. This is very reminiscent of another passage of Scripture. Uh, in fact, Acts chapter 3, uh, the focus in that particular passage was Peter and John going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, and there was a man who was laid at the gate called Beautiful who was also crippled 
unable to walk, Paul or Peter powerfully through the work of God healed that man who immediately jumped up and began praising God. Well, these two stories are very similar. And the purpose for that is Luke, the author, is showing us a couple of things. One, the gospel was being preached in power. And two, Peter operated an apostolic anointing. Paul operated an apostolic anointing. Look at Acts 14, verse 8. It says, Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth. He had never walked. That's almost identical to what happened in chapter 3. This man listened to Paul speaking. So the question is, where is Paul speaking at this time? We would think synagogue. But what's fascinating, there was not a large enough population of Jewish people to warrant a synagogue. So there's no synagogue at Lystra. Chances are, Paul's speaking in the open air. So he's like in a marketplace or a common area where people gathered. In fact, very similar to Acts 17, where Paul preaches at Athens and just the open square where people gathered. So he's open-air preaching. What message do you think Paul is delivering at this time? Preaching the gospel. Okay, he is preaching that there is a God who has created the heavens and the earth. He's speaking to a Gentile audience. And he's talking about the separation from God and man is sin. And as he's declaring this message, it says in the text, verse 9, he listened to Paul, Paul speaking. He, this person who had been born crippled, and Paul looking intently at him. So he focuses in on him, seeing he had the faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, I believe not only to gather the attention of this man who was sitting there listening, but also to address the city of Lystra, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. Just like we see in Acts chapter 3, there is an immediate healing. Okay, so muscles and tendons that had not existed and had not been operated, pathways across the brain had not been established instantaneously. He is strengthened to the point where he can jump up and he begins to walk around. How do you think the crowd's going to respond to something like that? Oh, Whoa! Right? That gets my attention. If I have known this guy his whole entire life, he's this Lystra guy who everybody knows. What do you think they called the guy? Probably really positive things, right? So here's this guy who is powerfully healed. But you get this interesting little note that Paul saw he had the faith to be made whole or to be healed, which has led some to use this passage as a proof text to all kinds of shenanigans in the church. And so I just need to briefly address some, some really strong false teaching that happens in the local church. And some of you, I believe, have been impacted by this. There are some who believe, falsely, that they are operating under apostolic power. I hear some today that call themselves apostles, and they are operating under apostolic power. And in that apostolic power, they believe that they have the ability to heal people. You ever see anybody on TV waving a bandana around and knocking people over and whipping them and all kinds of crazy stuff? Y'all tracking? Yes, okay. So they believe they're operating under apostolic power. And how they get around the fact that many people don't actually get physically healed, even though they say they got healed, is that they will then turn to this passage and say, well, they just didn't have enough faith to be healed. Isn't that a nice thing to do to somebody who's suffering physical ailment? Let's just go ahead and tack on top of that. They didn't have enough faith to be healed. 
In this passage, what Paul is declaring, he is not preaching the healing of physical ailments. He is talking about spiritual uh, sickness. The separation between God and man is sin. It was not the physical infirmity. He's preaching about spiritual infirmity. And to demonstrate that Paul and friends had brought a message in power, God empowered Paul to heal this man. Every time that there is a healing in the book of Acts, it is for the express purpose of providing platform for the gospel to be proclaimed. You will never find a miracle just for a miracle's sake. This man who is sitting here listening to Paul, it's one thing for him to be physically healed and then died. It's another thing for him to be spiritually healed and eternally live. Which is the greater healing? Which is greater for Jesus to say to a man, your sins are forgiven or take up your mat and walk? It is much greater to have your sins forgiven. Did anybody testify to that? I would much rather be eternally forgiven. No matter how uh, difficult the physical ailments we are facing, I would rather be eternally forgiven than just immediately physically healed. The priority is the eternal life. This man is powerfully saved. And what I love, too, is that God shows his love. He shines his love on the most overlooked, the most marginalized, the easiest to forget. God shines his love on this man. And he jumps up and he begins to praise the Lord. He didn't have to go to rehab. He didn't have to take it slow. He's immediately healed. And so the town of Lystra is worked up into a frenzy. Okay, they are, they are now just totally shocked by what has happened to them. And so now Paul and Barnabas have this opportunity, this platform to proclaim the gospel. But something crazy is about to happen. Because the city of Lystra is now all up in, a, in, uh, in an excitement. They're not just giving Paul and Barnabas platform. They're about to put them on a pedestal. They don't want to just hear what these guys have to say. They're ready to worship them. Look at verse 9, or verse 11, I'm sorry. <laughs> when the crowd saw what Paul had done, so they attribute the miracle to Paul. They lifted up their voices saying in Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And so Paul and Barnabas are standing there, and they're, they're hearing all this stuff in Lyconian. They don't speak Lyconian, but all of a sudden they're like, wait, did they just call me Zeus? Did, am I Hermes? What? Wait, 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 hold on. Hold on a second, guys. What are you talking about? And all of a sudden they're saying, you're Zeus, calling Barnabas the chief of all the Greek pantheon, and they're calling Paul Hermes, and they're, they're about ready to worship these guys. A little bit of archaeology helps us understand why. They're about to worship Paul and Barnabas. There is an old inscription found at the site of Lystra that coincides with an ancient Roman poem written by a guy by the name of Ovid. Here, here, listen to this. The Roman poet Ovid told of an ancient legend in which Zeus and Hermes came to the Phrygian hill country disguised as mortals seeking lodging. After being turned away from a thousand homes, they found refuge in the humble cottage of an elderly couple. In an, an appreciation for the couple's hospitality, the gods transformed all the cottage, uh, the humble cottage into a temple with a golden roof and marble columns. <laughs> and then the houses of the inhospitable were what? <laughs> very, very kind gods, these gods are. All the houses of the inhospitable were then destroyed and demolished. This ancient legend may be the reason that the people treated Paul and Barnabas as, God, as gods after witnessing the healing of the cripple. They didn't want to make the same mistake as their ancestors. And so 
the priest of Zeus, of course there's a priest of Zeus in the city, he leaves the temple of Zeus on the outskirts of the city, and he has in his parade a couple of bulls that he is adorned with garlands and with wreaths, and they're about ready to perform a sacrifice to, to Paul and Barnabas. Uh, verse 13. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice and worship to Paul and Barnabas with the crowds. I just want to say, be careful. There are going to be times in your life where God is going to empower you and allow you to do some really incredible things. In fact, Jesus had said to his disciples that you're going to do greater miracles than I myself have. Not greater in the actual work, but in the quantity of of works we're going to be able to do. And there are going to be times where people are going to want to put you on a pedestal. I'm going to tell you that is so uh, common in pastoral ministry. I see it all the time. People elevate a particular pastor or a particular speaker or a particular leader, and they put them up on this pedestal, and they say things like, oh, they're brilliant. They're anointed. They are charismatic. And all of a sudden, this person gets raised up so, so high that you can't even clearly see God anymore. Oh, family, listen up. We need to be very careful. We must never allow people to elevate us in such a way that it diminishes their view of God. And we must never allow ourselves to elevate somebody that it diminishes our view of God. I'm going to tell you, you, you put a mortal up on a pedestal, you, you know what they're going to do? They're going to fall. And they are going to let us down. Paul the Apostle immediately jumps off the pedestal. Verse 14, But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and they rushed out into the crowd crying, Why are you doing these things? We're just dudes of like nature with you. They rip their clothes in a testimony of lament and mourning and humility. They're like, guys, we're just people. Don't elevate us. We're just messengers. He goes on to say, we bring you the good news. We bring you the euangelizo, the, the, the good news of the gospel, that you should turn from these vain things, this empty worship to the living God, this God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. These people don't have to live in bondage anymore. Paul's like, quit living in bondage to this, this fake and empty and powerless false religion. Turn from these vain things. That word vain could also be translated as idle or empty or fruitless or useless or powerless or lacking in truth. And I'll tell you one thing I want to proclaim over our culture. If, there, if I had the opportunity to proclaim to our entire culture one thing, you know what it would be? Turn away from these vain things. The fruitless ideology of moral relativism, the powerless notion of atheistic evolution, the embracing of wisdom of this world that's complete rubbish. Turn to the living God who has created the celestial realm. All that Hubble goes out and searches and like beams back to earth and we go... Whoa! The living God created that. 
All that takes place on the terrestrial realm where we're like, it's so strange that this earth just so happens to be located in the exact right place, distance from the sun, distance from the moon, to create this hospitable planet that is almost like a habitat for humanity. Yes, it is. The living God created this. And what's even crazier is like we have forgotten as a culture, the Imago Dei, that we're in the image of God. As humanity, we are created in God's image. And the more we leave and the more we walk away from this concept of the Imago Dei, the more, the more humanity is just like free-falling. We don't know who we are. We don't know what we are. We have no foundation. We have nothing to build our life on because we've turned away from the living God. I mean, that, that's kind of what I would proclaim. Like, if I had the opportunity. <laughs> I mean, that's just it in a nutshell. Turn away from these vain things, these empty things. It really is shifting sand. You uh, sang it this morning so well, Kaylin. It's shifting sand. Why do you think our culture is so panicked right now? Why do you think the prevailing emotion is fear and anxiety and panic? In past generations, verse 16, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own way. And we may look at that and go, oh, that's a good thing. He allowed the nations to walk in their own way. That's not a good thing. Do you know what humanity does when it walks in its own way? Utter rebellion. That's what we do. We have like masters and doctorates in rebellion. That's what we do when we walk in our own way. But it's not like God hasn't left us without a witness. There is a witness. Did you know that creation itself testifies that there is a God? In fact, in verse 17, Paul says this, Yet he did not leave himself without a witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with good food and gladness. Paul's like, this living God, even though you worship vain things, this living God lavishes you with blessings literally poured out from heaven. Turn away from this false worship and idolatry and self-righteousness. Turn away from vain pursuits in this life. And then verse 18, even with these words, they scarcely, like, they were still like axe in hand, like, should we, should we not slaughter the, the, the bulls? Should we? In fact, I love this little tapestry. Uh, this was a series of, of tapestries done in the 16th century. This was going to hang in the Sistine Chapel. And you can see, like, the, the, there's Zeus. There's the, the priest of Zeus. He's like, I'm ready to do it. And uh, you see these, these disciples are like, wait, stop! And Paul and Barnabas like ripping their clothes. Like they could barely, scarcely keep them from performing this, this sacrifice. And what's crazy to me, and what I hope is just so funny, um, the praise and worship of people. Oh, it is a fickle thing. Because one moment they're ready to, uh, to perform a sacrifice for you, and the next minute, you're the sacrifice. So it just so happened that as Paul and Barnabas had made their way to Lystra, so had antagonists. They travel a hundred miles to again stir up 
some persecution. And so we get to verse 19. The contrast is startling. And one minute they're like, you're the gods. The next minute, let's get some rocks. Okay, but the Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city supposing that he was dead. And one moment, you're a god. And the next moment, you're dead. People are a mess, aren't they? And what I find fascinating, and I've mentioned this before, and you got to hear this, please. If you don't know why you're on earth, if you don't know your purpose, why God has crafted you, you're going to allow other things or other people to define you. That's a dangerous thing. If your identity is rooted in something other than your relationship with Christ, you're on sinking sand. Because you're going to be complimented in this life, and you will be criticized. You've got to learn to carry both with the same weight. You cannot let the compliments go to your head, and you cannot let the criticism get to your heart. When you know who and what you are and why you are on earth, and you are walking in the will of God, People may lob verbal stones at you, but you will stay the course. Paul the Apostle is stoned half near to death. The other half of him probably wasn't much to look at. But in verse 20, it says the disciples gathered about him. I'm just like imagining a group of disciples like, hey, um, can somebody poke him with a stick? Is he alive? Like looking down on him. Paul. He rose up and entered back into the city. He goes back. I'm like, give me one-tenth of this dude's courage. If I just got stoned in a city, I'm not going back in it. And on the next day, he went on to Barnabas to Derby. He takes the afternoon off, and then he continues on mission. And so the text continues. They go to Derby uh, when they preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples. They returned to Lystra. They go back to Iconium and to Antioch. They're strengthening the souls of the disciples, verse 22, and encouraging them to continue in the faith. Listen to this encouragement. How many of you are going through a rough time today? I don't know if this is going to be encouraging to you. But for whatever reason, this is Paul's encouragement. He's encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, can somebody tell me what that word means? Awful stuff sufferings and crushings and pressure. Some of you are like, you just described my life. We must enter the kingdom of God. Family, we, we got to realize, I hate it, it's not even fine print. We call it the fine print of the Christian life. We've made it the fine print. Jesus never had it the fine print. He told us from the very beginning that there's going to be sufferings, there's going to be trials, there's going to be crushings. And some of us are like, that's not very encouraging. Well, it's not very encouraging because it goes against our American ideology. It's the reality. There is going to be suffering in this life. There is going to be tribulation in this life. And you know there's going to be tribulation in this life specifically because you worship and follow Christ. But stay the course. Keep the faith. Don't quit. Because there's great rewards stored up for us in heaven. I had a, a wonderful saint come up to me after first service, and he goes, and I'll tell you, he, it, took him a lot, it took him a lot to walk up here. And he goes, I hope you understand how hard it was for me to walk all the way up here. 
older guy, Kane, I was like, I get it. And he goes, look, you don't get discouraged. You stay the course. You keep the faith. It's kind of cool when the preacher gets preached at. And he goes, I want you to encourage, I want to encourage you. In fact, uh, somebody yell, read it out. Galatians 6, 9. Somebody get, whoever gets there first, read it out. And you're going to have to stand up. Nothing greater than public speaking. Hopefully it's a first time guest. Let's isolate you. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Can somebody just stand and read out to the entire church Galatians 6, 9? Oh, you got beat. Sorry. This isn't a stop sign, all right? No, you go. No, 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 you go. Uh -huh, uh -huh, uh -huh. Go ahead, Nicole. Okay. And let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. That's what he quoted to me. Don't lose heart, for in due season you'll reap a harvest. So Paul was saying to the churches, and what we may not realize is he was going, he is now speaking to churches that have been established. They are church planters. And so there's now a church at Lystra. There's now a church at Iconium. There's now a church at Antioch. Verse 24, then they passed through Pisidia and Pamphylia, those regions. And when they spoke the word in Perga, they went back to Perga. They went down to Italia. And from there, they sailed to Antioch. And so can you bring up that map for me, Matt? So they are at Lystra. They go down to Derby, preach the gospel there. Then they establish a church there. They go up to Lystra. They encourage the church there. The Iconium, there's a church there. There's a church at Antioch. Everywhere they went and preached the gospel, there's now a church. Isn't that incredible? This is cool stuff. They go down to Perga, proclaim the, the word there. They go over to Italia. Then they sail all the way back to Antioch and Syria. And they're like, oh my gosh, look what God has done. And we have just completed the first missionary journey. Wasn't that fun? We just got to go this entire missionary journey with Paul and friends, and now we're back at Antioch, and there's this great celebration, and they're staying there, and they're encouraging the church. And then next week, we're going to make a trip down to Jerusalem uh, because they're, they're what has been called, and I believe it is true, the most pivotal point in the book of Acts is chapter 15. And we are going to set out to answer the question, what must you do to be saved? I can't think of a, a more important question. And so we're going to make our way to the Jerusalem Council before we start our second missionary journey, which we will set out to embark on next week. Uh, but with all of that, let's talk about some applications. Because it's one thing for us to study and read the Word of God, uh, but it's another thing to apply it to our life today. This scripture is very applicable to our life today. First, I want to talk about pedestals and platforms. Uh, sometimes we confuse these. Mm, the lines between the two get kind of blurry. Uh, we're going to be probably given opportunity at both. So let me define. Platform is the God-given opportunity to share the life-saving message of Jesus Christ with somebody else. Okay, this platform could be on a stage on Sunday morning. It could be in an, a board meeting on Monday. It could be on a street corner in Rowlett where a couple of knuckleheads hold up a sign that say you were loved. Okay, it's platform. That's all it is. It's just leveraging an opportunity to infuse Christ into a conversation 
or to a, uh, a business or to a family reunion, whatever that is. Platform is a God-given opportunity. Pedestals are a man-made reality. That is where we ourselves allow ourselves to be elevated over another person. We start to look down on them. Or we allow other people to elevate us up. And I'm going to tell you, when you start serving God, you start doing things, for people are going to elevate you. I don't know what it is about the human heart and our tendency to idol, like, idol, well, idolize, well, American idol. Um, we like to put people up on a pedestal to the point where, like, we, we worship them to such an extent, like, if they've touched something, we're like, wait, that was their toilet seat? I want to buy it. A million dollars. We're a weird people. I'm just saying. <clears throat> people will, will elevate. Family, you got to jump off that pedestal. I'm not going to allow you to, to elevate me on a pedestal. I just can't live that way. <clears throat> and you can't do that. You can't elevate me. You can't go, wow, this guy's just this incredible. You got to realize I'm just like you. Okay, I don't have like an inroads, like a, a, picker, a quicker pickup with the Lord because I'm a pastor. I don't have like a phone in my office <coughs> that gets me right to him. I have the same prayer channel you do. Do you all believe that? I get indigestion. <laughs> Getting some right now. You didn't need to know that. I struggle with the same sin struggles you do. The same tendencies to turn away. The same anxieties and depression. Uh, if you know me well enough, you'll know when the cloud of depression comes on me. I'm, I'm in the same world you are. There's no room for a pedestal. We are all equal underneath the cross. Amen? Okay, it doesn't matter what our net worth is. doesn't matter what neighborhood we live in. doesn't matter what we drive. We are all equal underneath the cross. And that's a great thing. Uh, and so pedestals and platforms. Use those platforms, but step off the pedestals. Amen? We must never allow people to elevate us in such a way that it diminishes their view of God we must not elevate ourselves. Family, if I elevate myself and I diminish your view of God, I need another career. I need another calling because I'm messing it. I'm missing it. Okay, secondly, turn away from vain things. I think one leads to two. There's a lot of vanity. There's a lot of fruitless pursuits in our life. Family, turn away from it. Don't embrace the false ideology of our culture. It is a culture that is going to death. Turn to the living God who has created the heavens and the earth. Turn to the living Christ, who has died for your sins, was buried, and rose from the dead. Turn to the, the living God and have life. Turn and be saved. And this is not just for you who do not have a relationship with Jesus. I don't know where you're at spiritually. I don't claim to know. But I think all of us as believers, we need to practice this concept of daily turnings. Don't you find yourself turning away from God throughout the day at times? Like, Man, you just get lured away, like, oh, that does look interesting. Oh, wow. And all of a sudden, we're like faced a different direction. Like, we daily need to turn back. Daily remind ourselves. What I love about communion, every week we're reminding ourselves. Turn away from the vain things of culture. And then finally, I know you saw this when you first saw the title, the joke, but I'd use this so it's sticky. Preaching Jesus and getting stoned. Snicker, snicker, snicker. Um... People don't want to hear about Jesus in our culture. They just don't. 
I think a lot of it has to do with the caricatures, the negative caricatures of Christians and Jesus and the church, right? There's a lot of negative caricatures out there. You all agree? But there are some people that don't want to hear about Jesus because you're the aroma of death. You're the reminder that they are traveling a road that leads to death. And so here's the deal. We have to live in such a way that we dismantle false caricatures of Christianity, but we also have to share the name of Jesus. Like, we have to. We cannot keep quiet about Jesus. People will throw uh, verbal stones. They'll, they'll mock us with piercing jabs. But we've been commissioned as his disciples to share the message of Jesus and make disciples. And so my encouragement in that is this. Share the true Jesus. The you are loved Jesus. The sacrificial Jesus. The resurrected Jesus. The life-giving and the life-saving Jesus. People may do us wrong for doing the right thing, but stay on mission. Remember that there's going to be crushings, there's going to be pressures, there's going to be suffering. We must pass through that until we cross into eternity. And I, I have a feeling that we're going to testify that the scriptures, what they say, no matter what we go through in this life, no matter awful, in eternity, we'll look back and go, that was light and that was momentary compared to the surpassing glory of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? Let us proclaim the praises of one who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. It is there for our edification, for our study and growth. We thank you, Lord, that we can come to your scriptures any time of day. It is a bountiful table. It is filled with all kinds of delights and delicacies, uh, challenging uh, words for our soul, our minds, our hearts. Lord, I pray, Holy Spirit, you have your way in us through your word that our natural posture of rebellion is replaced with humility and humble worship. Yeah, if you're here today and you do not know Jesus as your Savior, please hear this. There is a God. He has created the heavens and the earth. The Bible declares we're separated from this God because of sin, not just sins we've committed, but because of a nature of sin Jesus took on our sin nature, our flesh, died on the cross for them, our sin, and was buried and rose. The Bible declares all who believe in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection will be saved. You need salvation. Be saved. Be saved. If that is you, you want to receive Jesus as your Savior, your Lord, he's alive. The quietness of your heart, tell him, Lord Jesus, I believe. I believe that you died for me. I believe you were buried. I believe you have risen. Please, Jesus, save my life. If that is your heart's prayer, you've just passed from death to life, from blindness to sight. You are now a son or a daughter of the living God. Welcome to the family. It's going to be a rough ride but it leads to something great. So Lord, give us greater faith today. Give us greater courage. A greater sense of dependency as we walk out, plot out this journey of faith. In your name we pray, amen. All right, y'all, let's stand together.
Now go into the world in peace. You can't unsee that. Have courage. Hold on to what is good. Honor all men. Strengthen the faint-hearted. Support the weak. Help the suffering. And share the gospel. Love and serve the Lord in the power of the Holy Spirit. And may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. So we meet again, same time, same place next week. And family, do not forget, you are loved. Now go tell the world, go proclaim to the world that they are too. Have a great week.